Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen continues her eight-part series of four interviews exploring the roots and history of attachment theory. In her final two episodes, Karen welcomes Dr. Robert Karen to the show for part one of their two-part conversation on his landmark book, Becoming Attached. Part two will be released on Tuesday, June 22nd. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I am your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you here from Chaddock. And wow, am I excited about the interview I have for you today. This interview is going to be part of the series we are doing, looking at the history of attachment theory. Today, I have the privilege of reviewing interviewing Dr. Robert Karen. Dr. Karen is a clinical psychologist who practices in New York City. And if his name sounds familiar, it could be because he has written a very famous award-winning book called Becoming Attached, which was released in actually 1994, following an article called Becoming Attached, which was in The Atlantic in 1990. The book is just a beautiful synthesis of attachment theory, attachment research, and uh, the application of it. And honestly, it reads like a novel. When I first got my hands on this book back when it was released, I could not put it down. And he's currently revising it. So if you haven't read Becoming Attached, you may want to wait for the release of the updated version. He's also um, a private practice psychologist, psychoanalyst in New York City. And in addition to his famous books and that article I already mentioned in The Atlantic, he's written for New York Magazine, The Nation, as well as the Yale Review, and has been an assistant clinical professor of advanced psychological studies at Adelphi University, also in New York. So I am really looking forward to chatting with him He's just a perfect person to be interviewing regarding the history of attachment theory. So please stay tuned. The interview will be coming right up. Hey, Dr. Karen, thank you for joining us here on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. My pleasure. Yeah, so when I had the idea to do a series about the history of attachment theory, your book, Becoming Attached, came to mind right away. (laughs) So I'm absolutely thrilled to be able to talk uh, about it with you. But first, could you tell our listeners just, I mean, I gave a formal introduction of you um, before you joined me for the interview, some of your background and your writing, but What's your informal introduction? How did you kind of get into all of this? Because I understand that you were a writer before a psychologist. That's right. I, I was a journalist for many years, freelance. <laughs> and yes. um, when I entered graduate school to do my clinical degree, yes, um, I took an infancy class my first semester taught by Arietta Slade. 
Okay. And I learned about attachment theory. And there was one paper she had us read, which was um, uh, the one by um, uh, Jude Cassidy. Oh, Tree Flies six, and Intimacy, maybe. It, it was the one where it was the it was the one where the adult attachment interview was first used. Yes, there were several papers all written together. It was a six-year assessment of children who had been assessed of their in their of their attachment profi- profiles. You know, six years earlier. Yes, and um, and this this paper was so interesting. I thought, oh, here's something I could write about and make some money to get me through school. Because that's how I, you know, I was putting myself through school with the journalism. So that paper was where it all started. And um, I, I did an article for The Atlantic on attachment theory. Yes. And it was basically an historical article. This is, this is what, you know, happened. This is how it came about. This is what they found. And uh, I was going to leave it there. But I got calls from a lot of uh, publishers and agents saying, hey, this will make a great book. Would you be interested? So that's how I wrote the book. And at the very same time I was writing the book, I was finishing up my, my graduate work, my, my fellowship, and becoming a, a psychotherapist, a psychoanalyst, actually. Yes. And so that um, Atlantic article in 1990, now 31 years ago, wow, does that seem like mind-blowing to you? Or it does. does. It? it does. It's amazing to me to think how long ago. The book came out over 25 years ago. Yeah, 1994, and, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I was interested to find out that you were a journalist because when I read your your wonderful book, um, and I know you have others that we can share later with listeners about, it reads like a novel. Like this is not how people, you know, write journal articles and things like this. You wrote in such a, a way that I just couldn't put the book down. And so I'm like, oh, now this all makes sense. You're, you're, you're a writer, a journalist first. Also, I was myself, um, I myself had a lot of trouble reading journal articles. You know, I was okay. going through a clinical program. We read a lot of journal articles. Uh, they they gave me a headache. I couldn't, they weren't written with the reader in mind. And uh, so for me to understand concepts, it was really helpful for me to write them in, in a way that made sense to me. And that's what I brought to the book. You know, this this part of me that wants to translate things that are complicated and scientific and and difficult to understand and difficult to read because of poor writing or just lack of concern for writing. Yes. That um, so that's how it, you know it came about that my uh, my former work as a journalist really paid off in in writing a book like this. Yes, and it certainly paid off for all of us in the field, clinicians who, you know, are looking at these concepts in a more practical way. And, you know, at the same time, you know, journal articles are so precise and so specific. And it's sort of like, you know, what what do we do with some of this? <laughs> um, and and you, you have made it so accessible. In fact, when I was 
rereading um, both the book and the Atlantic article, and and you were talking about John Bowlby being the great synthesizer, and I, I thought, well, you 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 are a synthesizer as well. In a way, you're right, and I try to keep the um, the strands a lot, uh, the strands of attachment theory connected to each other. There's so much going on. Yes, yes, yes. So so I want to fur- I want to talk about some of the main things that that you brought up in that the the book and that original article and then you know maybe as we go along and this um later in the interview we'll talk about what's changed because i know you're revising the book and a lot has happened in 30 years right yeah but um yeah so i love your opening in the introduction of the book about how do we become who we are and and i'm thinking back to that atlanta atlantic article and another thing i was thinking about was would you say, is it, is it wrong to say that article, we didn't use the term back then, but would you say it kind of went viral? Yes, it did. I, 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 got a, I got a lot of letters myself, including one from a, um, a developmentalist at a, at a college in Connecticut who said, you've sent um, developmentalists all over the country to the Xerox machine. Oh, what a great compliment. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, if anyone, if it, like some of our listeners might be like, what's a Xerox machine? You know, we're, <laughs> we're dating ourselves, right? That's right. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and, it, and the same thing happened with the book, I think. I, it was meant for the educated public. It was not meant to be a, you know, a, uh, a professional uh, book that was used in college courses, but that's what happened to it. I think we're, when the book came out, students were flooding the master's and PhD programs in developmental and child yes, development. Yeah. <clears throat> and and they needed to be taught the basics of attachment theory and understand where it came from. And you could either hand them a pile of journal articles that you, you know, copied and hand it over to them, and which were hard to read and no one would want to read, or you could say, just read this book. And I think that's what happened for, you know, the last couple of decades. Yes. Yes. So, you know, another thing um, you write about in the beginning of the book is this sort of dread of becoming our parents, perhaps. And you, you had a way of, I think, uh, hooking the reader in to, you know, this this matters with with everyday life and, and helping us see see ourselves in this. Tell me a little bit more about that, because as a journalist, you're thinking about that. You're, you're wanting to hook the reader in. You're wanting what? You're wanting to intrigue the reader and, and oh, yeah. bring yeah, them no, in. I, yeah, I, I try to do that in various ways. You know, this is what, this was the very first one on the first page. You know, you, you, you may not want to be your father or your exactly. mother, but you are. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I think this is a big issue for people because... Um, they, you find people who are really concerned about, let's say they had a mother who was uh, not attentive, who was distracted, who had her own problems, who wasn't really up for the job, or maybe even not even wanting the job. And you were never going to be like that mother yourself. And you become a parent, and you become super indulgent, and everything the child wants, you give it. With occasional bursts of temper because, you know, you're putting yourself in a kind of prison where you can't be authentic. And in some way, that looks totally different 
you've incorporated an aspect of your mother's psychology. Yes. And and sometimes it comes out when that that blast of temper when you use the exact same words that she did. Um, yes. And uh, you know it's just it's just one of the um, the issues in being human is you know how we're bathed in the psychology of our parents when we're very little and we incorporate a lot of it. And if we want to get past it, you know that's what psychotherapy was invented for. Yes, yes. You know, and then you take us on a chronological journey, at least partly chronological, through attachment theory. And I want to talk about some of that and the people that you you write about, so appropriate for a series on the history of attachment theory. But first, I want to ask you, why was a theory of I, I think many of our listeners are like, well, attachment theory, duh, of course, you know, like that, that it, it's the predominant theory of child development in the world and are really not understanding that based on what Piaget was contributing and, and other people that you write about, this was something very different. Can you talk well, about that? It, it came about, it came about, Obviously, it was invented by John Bowlby, who was a psychoanalyst in, in, in London. And um, his ideas were not well received by his colleagues. It wasn't that psychoanalysis and psychoanalysts didn't believe that the child is the father to the man and that our early experience helps define who we become and that parents are really important. But the way Bowlby talked about it he brought in aspects of science like ethology well the psychoanalysis never dealt with anything outside of itself it never it never tried to do research that incorporated uh knowledge from other fields and bolby was doing that and he was saying look you have these family systems among the lower animals and we're we're related to them and this and it matters and and analysts at that time some of them anyway the ones like um, uh, who were more orthodox and more loyal to the way an analysis had been thinking for a long time just couldn't tolerate Bowlby's ideas, and he Bowlby was not like was not going to tone anything down. He was a very uh, he was a crusader. He was unafraid. He was going to speak his mind, and he got pretty much banished from his psychoanalytic community at that time. He read his articles before the community and they were made people go wild. <laughs> so but so that was almost like an accident of history because analysis had always been interested in early experience, but it had become in recent decades when Bowlby came along, it was very much involved in the fantasy life of the child. Yes. And not just the fantasy life of a child who is deprived or traumatized or has suffered a major loss, but the average, the, 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 the inner life of a child who's had the average expectable uh, experience at home. So there's nothing distorting, just the way things normally would be in a home. And what is it like when that, when that child reaches, let's say, age three or four and starts having tremendous feelings of desire for the opposite sex parent? What kind of 
what kind of things go through his head? His wants, you know, his, his wanting to get rid of his father or her wanting to get rid of her mother and have a father to herself. These were the things that analysis was very deeply involved in on just trying to understand. And they were less concerned with variations in home life, you know, abuse, deprivation, and so forth. So Bowlby was all about those kinds of things in home life. Yeah. What kind of what kind of experiences a child might have that would um, cause him to have a distorted interior life. So he came along just at a time when analysis was looking in a different direction. Yes, and, yes. and so there was a lot. So from the very beginning, and uh, attachment theory was challenged in that way. And then there were other challenges later on. Behaviorists found fault with attachment theory. People, temp, temperament theorists and researchers yeah, found fault yeah. with attachment theory. Everyone uh, had a gripe with attachment, the basic principles of attachment theory. Yes, yeah, lots of controversy ensued. I, I like um, where you talk about, and you, you mentioned this briefly, that attachment theory was a bringing together of... Um, ethology, developmental psychology, and psychoanalysis, and that, I think you say something like in the book or, or the article, maybe I get them mixed up at times, um, which they, those disciplines couldn't be troubled with knowing about the other prior to this. Right. He, he really brought those disciplines together in a way that no one ever imagined. Yeah. And, it, and after you, and, and now you look back and you think it's obvious. I mean, they belong together. It so, makes so much sense, but at the time it didn't. Yes. And so what, this idea of a theory of relatedness as opposed to just looking at cognitive functioning, and, and you, you write about that as being just a complete, as well, like, I, I mean, I know you're talking about some of that with what you just described, but any other thoughts on why that was so radical? Well, at the time, Bowlby's great partner was Mary Ainsworth. Yes. And she, her world was developmental psych. It wasn't psychoanalysis, even though she had been analyzed and she was very interested in psychoanalysis and she read all of Freud. But her world was developmental psych. And developmental psych at that time was in the United States was all about behaviorism. Yes. And behaviorism didn't believe in the inner life. You know, that was, in the, that was, you know, was in the black box that could never be opened. You know, you can't know what's going on there. All you could know was behavior. Right. And attachment theory said, no, you can know more than behavior. You can know what's going on inside as well. And there's ways of studying it. And they proved it. They really did. They really made their case successfully with very ingenious studies. And so with <clears throat> behaviorism, the idea was being purported very much to parents, like, don't pick up your children. This will spoil the baby. Everything was about, you know, behaviors that you're reinforcing or not reinforcing. Could you share with our listeners a little bit about the theory of parenting at the time that this was also coming up against? Well, there was there was two theories really out there. You know, there was Dr. Spock who fit in very nicely with, you know, attachment. And he was very concerned with, you know, love and quality of care. 
And there was the behavioral, which was kind of ruling the roost at that time, which was don't pick up a child when it cries, a baby when it cries, you're just going to spoil it. And everything that they they stood for, not everything, I mean, there were, a lot, there were overlaps. There were things where they, were, they also believed in the importance of the environment, but they, were, they didn't link the environment to the inner life. And they were shocked that people would even try to do that. And they were very dismissive of attachment theory in the beginning. In fact, Ainsworth was excoriated at, me, at meetings of the child development, uh, conferences and so forth, um, for having these points of view, that the inner life mattered, the inner life could be talked about, that, the inner, that you could have, as, as, as one of her colleagues, Alan Strove said, that you could have a science of the inner life, you know? It would just seem inconceivable to behaviorism. Sometimes it makes me really wonder what we're missing in science now, because, you know, they, they were so determined. You know, I, I look back at, at, at what Bowlby was doing and, and, and Ainsworth and the Robinson films, and it, it seemed like they were approaching every single angle possible to try to get this point across in very convincing ways, but it was still rejected for a long period of time. Yeah, they had a, they had a lot of fights. Um, there was a wonderful paper by uh, Everett Waters, who was a student of uh, Mary Ainsworth's and who went to work in Minnesota with Alan Strope, where he showed that uh, if you studied an infant at 12 months and then again at 18 months, the behaviors that the infant was likely to do at those ages were totally different. There was no correlation between the behaviors. But if you looked at the organization of behavior, mm. then you saw a continuity from 12 to 18 months. And this was something that behaviorism was astounded by because they thought there was no continuity. There would only be how you reacted to what was going on at the moment that the study was being done. Yes. What was happening, that was what you were reacting to. That was what you know, we all react to, that's all we know. And uh, I think I'm, doing, I'm being very unfair to behaviorism, but <laughs> that's, that's a crude interpretation. And, um, and so uh, this was, the studies like Everett's really made a tremendous difference. And the same thing happened with temperament. The next big opponent were those who believed in um, uh, inherited uh, psychology, inherited personalities, inherited character traits. And that set off the biggest conflict of all. I mean, that went on for a long time. Still still going on, would you say, wouldn't you say? No, I think no? not seriously. I don't think anyone, well, no, it's still going on. It's still going on. Uh, there are stalwarts who will, who will use that very phrase, how we become who we are, and um, apply it to genetics. Yes, yes. But for the most part, I mean, the work exists that shows that the, what, what attachment is concerned about, which is the child's inner sense of well-being, the child's um, respect for himself, the child's positive expectations, his trust, all these qualities that are important in relationships and are important in how you feel about yourself and the world, 
those aspects of uh, personality are not affected almost at all by temperament or genetics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ge- you know, genetics accounts for a lot, but not yes, those things. Yes. It's love that accounts for those things. Mm, I love that. Well, you know, this has been a fascinating conversation so far, and I cannot wait to continue it in our next episode uh, next week. So um, listeners come back and join us as I continue to talk with Dr. Robert Karen. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.